This is the Andrew Lake Podcast, and in this special edition, I'm sharing with you my personal experiences with time travel. The time I went 600 years into the future to see civilization and humanity. So this experience is extremely personal to me. It's been very hard for me to come up with the right way of talking about it. It's taken quite some time for me to get my head around it. I still don't understand it. I still don't realize the implications. And I'm warning you now, I might not be able to hold it together while I'm talking about this because it's so powerful, so mind-bending, so heart-wrenching, that it's just too much for me to bear and make sense of what I've seen and what has happened and what I've done. So I'm going to try and recall the events that have happened to me and hopefully I can understand it a bit better by articulating it and putting it into words and describing it in a tangible way. So I got the call in late January of the year 2018 for time travel. It was an unknown number and it was someone who announced themselves as a part of the military. They were in charge of organizing certain secret programs for the Navy and for the Army and for the Air Force. And at first, I thought it was a prank call. I was just like, okay, what's going on here? This is very funny. But as I spoke to this person on the other end of the phone, it was quite obvious they had a profile on me. They knew my age, they knew my birth, they knew my height, my weight, my family, and the reason they were calling me was because I actually have a distant relative who works in the army. So, well, they're not really a relative, but my brother-in-law's brother, so my sister's husband's brother, works in the army. And so I guess that makes him my step-cousin or something, or cousin-in-law. Yeah, that's it. Cousin-in-law. So, he works in the army, and he was prepped for this mission. So, I wouldn't have known anything about it if he had have been able to go on it. But what happened is he hurt himself at the last minute and was unable to fulfill his position on this mission. And the way time, tra- the way time travel works is it's based on maths and equations which calculate your body mass and psychological positioning, which allows for you to go on the process. And I don't fully understand the whole mechanics of it, but I'll try and explain as much of it as I can, as much of what has been told to me. But anyway, 
I got called to take his position at the last minute. So it was a rare opportunity. And for ages, I, I was listening to this phone call going, what? Like, this is absolute, this is crazy. This is insane. This is, there's no way that this is real. And so I'm sort of just laughing at this person who's telling me about time travel and trying to get me to go on this mission. And I'm like, okay, whatever. But eventually, towards the end, they say, look, you've got to be at the prep course on this date, at this time, at this place. And it was a cross state, and I had to organize time time off work, and it worked out well with my schedule because I had actually planned to have time off. And so I thought, well, what's the harm in checking it out? So I'll go along, go along for it. And that was the prep course. That was the intro. So it was a two-day prep course, six hours each day, and that was on the military base. And this was with someone who had done time travel. So they were presenting the prep course as someone who had actually had this experience. And as I went through this course, it dawned on me more and more that time travel is actually real. And by the end of this course, I was, I, I had actually been shattered enough to realize that this is going to happen. I am actually going to do this. And that was when, that was when things really started to unravel for me. But I should tell you a little bit about this course because it's important that we understand how it works going into time travel. So on one of the days, it's a two-day course, on one of the days they spend a lot of time comparing the 1400s to now, so 600 years ago, because we were going to time travel into the future 600 years. So it was 2618 when we went, and there was a couple of people in the group. So there was six people. I was one of six, plus the pilot, who's the time travel machine, which which actually wasn't a time travel machine. It's actually a plane. So a time machine is actually a plane, but I'll talk about the mechanics of time travel in a minute more. But So it's me and three girls, two other boys, plus the male pilot who had done time travel before. And they were all part of the military, part of the Navy, part of the Air Force. And they were all doing this prep course with me. So there was a, gr- a group of us that got to have this experience. But we were going through a comparison between the 1400s and now to show how dramatic civilization had changed so that when we saw what was in the future, we were ready for the shock of how different things were. So, for example, in the 1400s, there's no internet at all. There's no TV at all. There isn't even radio. There isn't even electricity. So you're using candles for your light bulbs. You're cooking things on a wooden fire. That's how you make your food. That's how you cook your food. This is a totally different world to what we live in. The camera was not even invented until 1816. So can you imagine a world without cameras? How different that makes our information? 
the printing press wasn't invented until the 1440s. So the nature of human knowledge was only really starting to change until about 600 years ago. Now imagine if you got someone from 600 years ago, from the 1400s, and said, now in the future, buildings are 80 stories high. We don't have one-level buildings, we have 80-story high buildings. And there's not just one of them, but there's thousands of them all over the world. And not only that, but everyone has their own personalized pod, which can travel at 100 kilometers an hour, so basically eight times faster than a horse, and everyone has their own one that they can use at any time that they want. Now, if you said that to someone in the 1400s, they would just have not a single moment of it. There would be no way they could wrap their head around it. And so we were learning about all these things in the prep course in comparison to the things that are in the future so that we were ready for the shock. So when you do space travel or high-speed travel of any sort, you have what's called the G-force shock. Because the faster you go, the faster you travel, matter starts to act in a different way and starts to bend. And that's the shock on your physical body. Now, in time travel, you don't really have any fast speed because it's basically the equivalent of a plane ride. But what you do have is what's called paradigm shock. So this is the shift in your understanding of how the world works. This is the crunch of your beliefs and making sense of the things you will see. So the second day of the the second day of the prep course that me and these six other people did was basically just telling us all the things we are going to see straight up saying you are going to see this this is going to happen and this is how the future is. And I could not believe a bar of it. It was there's it's just so outrageous and so unbelievable that it was shocking to me just to hear someone say what is in the future and what civilization is like. And another part of it was just learning about now what what is how does time travel work? How's the mechanics of it? And of course, we couldn't really understand it, but the way they explained it to me was in the future there is a special technology around hyper explosives hyperdynamic nuclear explosives so usually for usually for time travel you need a wormhole which is the size of a black hole that's you know that's like twice 10 times the size of this solar system but with this future technology what they can do is shoot a bomb which explodes within a small amount of space, as in a small area, but has an extremely high intensity of its nuclear reaction, which is so high that it mimics the tear of a wormhole. So a time machine is a the plane, which would just basically take off like any other plane, shoot this bomb into the front of it, of where it was going, and then it would fly into this explosion, and we got incinerated and destroyed, and then reassembled on the other side, or at least that's how I understood it. 
And the physics of it was pretty straight ahead compared to what people understand in the future. But the maths of it was what was technical and what was astronomical about it. They had this mathematical term, I think it was something like collapsing infinity, where you can calculate a probability on a outcome which has an infinite number of variables. And it was some new mathematical process that had been invented in the future. I'm going to talk about maths more when we descri- when I describe what was actually in there on this trip, like what I saw on this trip. But I can't really get my head around how time travel works. It just seems to just seem to be something that they understood from the future. This is because the time travel technology was something that was from the future coming back to our time. It isn't something that we have now. So we did this prep course and it was starting to dawn on me the shock of what was going to happen if I went through with this process, if I actually went along with this ride. So a week later, we went to the Navy base and went onto the plane. We had overnight pack. It was for a two-day trip. Um, It was basically a standard plane. And it took off. The explosion happened. It was basically a little bump. And I sort of blacked out for a second and came to on the other side without really knowing what was happening. It was basically just like waking up from sleep. And when I woke up on the plane, we were flying over the ocean and the pilot announced that we were about 20 minutes off New Zealand. So I live in Australia normally, but where we came out of the time travel was closer to New Zealand than Australia. So we decided to have our trip to New Zealand. So we went across and landed on the North Island, and there were people there who knew we were coming, ready to receive us. And we had a tour guide for the first day. So this was someone who was showing us around. Oh, man, I can't. I don't know if I can talk about this. We had a tour guide. So the plane landed, we came out onto the tarmac and there was a couple of people who were there to receive us and most of them left. Most of them left and we got left with this one tour guide which was a lady who, they, didn't, they don't speak English, none of, none of our languages are still around, it's a totally new English, so we had totally new language, so we had this tour guide and a translation bot And she would speak in this strange language to the translation bot, and that would speak at us when we were asking questions. We got onto a minibus, which was basically like a normal minibus. And that was one of the first things that really struck me about coming into this new world, is that it actually felt really normal. And we climbed onto this bus, and it seemed just like climbing onto any other bus. 
And we drove around, drove out of the airport, and buildings seemed normal. Trees seemed normal, like there's still grass around, there are still buildings, there are still roads. There were still other cars, like cars had four wheels, except they were driverless. And it just struck me how normal everything felt. And yet I had this feeling in the back of my mind, this pervasive feeling that now I am in this world where everyone I know and everyone I've ever seen and every place I've ever been is gone. It's dead. It's completely eradicated. This is the year 2618 and everyone I know, not even the people that I've been friends with in my family, but just the milkman, the bus driver, the garbage man, the janitor, they're all gone. And it was this difference between the normality of everything and the pervasive feeling like I'm in a different world that made everything feel a little bit nauseous, feel a little bit strange. So we were driving along and of course we had lots of questions for this tour guide. Um, but the first stop that we went to was one of the receiving stations for people who do time travel. So we weren't the first people who have done time travel and apparently about 800 people in the history of the time travel program have done it. Um, and that was one of the things that actually made me feel like it was a bit more believable when I was starting to be convinced that this was a real experience, is that more people have done it. It's not the first time that it's been done. So we went into this receiving headquarters and we got signed in and we went into our room, our conference room and sat down to have a few things explained to us straight up. So the first and most striking thing and the biggest thing that changed for us when we arrived and what we saw was nanotechnology. So this is neural technology. So our tour guide and everyone else we saw in this world for the entirety of the trip had a black band around the outside of their heads. And the first few hours of our trip was explaining what exactly neural technology is. Now, I don't fully understand it, so I'm just going to have to tell you how they explained it to me. Basically, what it is, is neural technology is where human software gets integrated with human biology. So your brain gets connected to the computer. And this means that you have infinite cognition. This means that you can download anything that is in written form, audio form, visual form. Oh, this, this was too shocking for me to get my... I, I could... When, when they told us this, I, I almost burst out into tears and I, I couldn't understand the implications. And I asked, well, okay, so what, what does that mean? What does, what does infinite cognition mean? I mean? How do people 
learn about it? How do people get it? So our tour guide said that human beings in this civilization don't start education until they're seven years old. When they're seven years old, they get the headband and their biology starts integrating with the global network. So all computer systems are completely centralized, basically like Wi-Fi for the entire world. So the whole world has Wi-Fi. By the time that seven-year-old has turned 10, they have the equivalent of a PhD in our times. So they are as smart as someone who has a PhD when they're 10 years old. And this growth is exponential, which means that by the time they are 14, they have about 8,000 PhDs. And this was, this was too much for me to take. By the time a human being finishes their education at the age of 18, they have the equivalent of 80,000 PhDs in their head. These people, these humans, are so far beyond our intelligence that we can't even fathom what it means to be a human being. Now, when you have that sort of cognition, your mind doesn't work in the same way that our minds work. So our minds work with words and with images. When you have 80,000 PhDs, you know the entire history of humanity. You know how to speak every single language. You know how to visualize at a crisp level that is far beyond any screen or VR. Oh, the implications. I don't know where to begin with trying to tell you the implications. Okay, so one of the ways they explain our era is that it's known as the age of the screen. So our intuition is to make screens more clear so that the picture in our head is more clear. So think of it this way. You can sit on your couch and look at a TV screen and the image will go into your brain and you will experience emotionally what is on the screen to a sort of rough degree. And the whole point of a screen is to be more realistic and more convincing. And so that you have more of an experience of what is being put on the screen. The same goes for VR, for virtual reality, or 3D TV. It's the same principle. In the future, there are no screens. There's no such thing as a screen. It's completely obsolete. Because with nanotechnology, you can plug in to the world's global network, the global Wi-Fi, and download a visual experience which is as real in your mind as experiencing real reality. And, of course, you know, I was like, when I heard this, I'm sitting in class thinking, what? So it's like the Matrix. It's just exactly like the Matrix. And the tour guide said, yes, she knew about that. Of course, she knew about that movie. 
And she said, yes, that's a great way of explaining it, except there's a few catches to it. It's that we have the matrix, the matrix does exist, except you can plug into it and plug out of it whenever you want. And when you're plugged into it, you can experience anything you can imagine as real as real life. So this technology completely revolutionized the human race. It completely overhauled all of our social institutions. And I'll talk through some of these implications. I'll talk through some of these implications as we go along. But another thing we learnt about in class on our first trip there was automation. So as we were driving around seeing things on our field trip on day one, we saw that everything was automated, everything was automatic, which means driverless cars. And not only that, but they said that everything is automated. So food production and shelter production, clothing production, is all 100% automated. And everything is free. Anything you want, you can order on from the mainframe and labor bots will come and build it for you. So whatever house you want, you've got to go through a process of designing, architecture, planning, and there's it's not immediate, but it takes time, but there's no money in this world. There's no currency in this world. So there's no desperation in this world. And uh, I can't get my head around it. And so there's no crime. Anything that you want, you can have. Any experience you want to have, you can have. So one of the people, one of the first questions that comes to mind is, well, what about sex? If you can just plug into this mainframe and have any experience that you want, why don't people just go off and live in a cocoon and have orgasms for the rest of their life? And when, when I asked that, the tour guide sort of just laughed and said, yes, well, that does happen sort of to some people, but not really, because sex is sort of like laughing. If you do it too much, it becomes, it becomes too, too much of a grind. It's too hard to keep up. So our biological needs are complex. There's still a range of human experiences, and there's still ups and downs throughout the day, and humans still do different things as they live their lives. So it's not just a utopia where everyone has one experience constantly, which is this peak state. But sex is seen as this barbaric thing. It's seen as this thing which is like, why would you do that if you just want to have an experience? And I said, well, what about, what about human connection? You know, sex is all about being close to someone. It's about understanding someone. And this is where they started to explain the connection technology. So each human has their neural connection, which is wired up to the mainframe computer. But they also have a one-on-one -on -one connection. So this was like this little wrist. There was a little wristwatch that people had. Not everyone had it. Some people had it. Other people didn't. But the way the wristwatch works is you are downloading your experiences to someone else. 
So when you meet someone on the street, you would put your watch up to their watch and you would transfer your experiences across to them. So uh, human connection is so far beyond anything that any human has experienced from our time. Because when you transfer things across the global network, you can transfer so much more. You can transfer thoughts at a much more rapid rate. And it's not just thoughts, it's also pictures. It's also feelings. Because the mind is connected to the nervous system. So when you transfer this information, the person is getting a much more rich understanding of what you are as a person. So think about this. If I meet you on the street and I want to tell you about what my life is like, I've got to use words. I've got to use pictures. I've got to tell a story and dance around and pull funny faces and put inflections on the emotions and try and get this image into your head and get you to feel the emotions. And that's a very slow way of communicating compared to downloading an entire subset of data. And so when you meet someone, you can get to know them. You can get to know what their last entire year was like in just a matter of minutes. They said it could take about 15 to 20 minutes to download someone's entire year. So. Think of the implications. You, you feel what someone else is experiencing. And that is your human connection. That is the understanding that you have of someone else. So the combination of this nanotechnology, this transferring of technology, and all this automation of transport, food, shelter, and products meant that the economy was actually the economy of imagination. Because when your only limit to experience is what you can think, then what you imagine up as an experience is what becomes most valuable. And there's still a range of differences in people. There's still a range of... There's, there's still a class structure. Because some people have more downloads from the mainframe more downloads from the mainframe than others. And some people have a richer education than others. And other people have better imaginations than others. But there's no pushing or fighting or competition. And that was another thing that really struck me about this world as I was driving around. So we left the conference hall and started to drive around on a bit of a tour to look at some sites. And everything was really slow. Everything was really fresh. All the houses were spaced out quite clearly. The cars drove really slow. They had a top speed of 60 kilometers, which at first I found really irritating. And I was like, well, why are these cars going so slow? They don't have traffic lights. They don't have road rules. They can work out how to get there. Why don't they go faster? And she said, well, no one really needs to get anywhere fast because any experience you want is readily available. So it's better to take your time and take in more of it. So Driving around in this minibus at 60 kilometers an hour at first was really frustrating, but after an hour or two, I really started to relax into it and it felt quite good. It felt quite peaceful. And we didn't see many people. We didn't see many houses because it was so spaced out. 
We didn't go to any of the abandoned cities, so there are places on Earth which are completely abandoned. And we don't have cities anymore because the world population is 500 million. And that's why things are so spaced out. It's because there's so many less people. I mean, I don't know very well what New Zealand is like before before I went on this time travel trip, but the world is a lot more spaced out. Because another one of my questions was, well, if people don't have sex, then how do babies happen? Don't people make babies? And the answer to that is no. Humans are born in laboratories. They're actually genetically engineered. And they can be engineered to have less diseases. So life expectancy is 160 years. And that's because they've been able to modify the genetic compounds of how humans are made and built them into these laboratory productions. And I said, well, who raises the kids? If there's no families, who raises the kids? And there are entire institutions established for that. And how it works is you have your child and adults do volunteer work in taking care of kids as a group in a community. So each community has a whole bunch of kids and a whole bunch of adults working on it. And so you don't have a mum or a dad. You have an entire community of people. And so if an adult becomes tired of taking care of some kids, they can just clock off. They can just end their shift and come back later. And someone else will take over. So the child is always having a whole lot more attention and a lot more care because there's always at least two or three adults that can give their full attention on the child. Now, think of families these days. Think of families in our times. You've got two parents, if you're lucky. Sometimes you've got one parent. And that parent has got to, first of all, take care of themselves. And, and second of all, sometimes has to work. So they're not always around. And if they want to take care of the kid with something that's pressing, they might not be ready to deal with it. So there's a lot of pressure on parents to take care of their kids. So kids are being raised without full attention, without being fully taken care of. And this has a huge impact impact on their development. It has a detrimental implication to how well they are formed. What I was being told was family is an inadequate institution and communities allow for children to be raised with the proper care and attention. And this means for much better psychological development, much more mature development in kids, and much more rapid growth in understanding. And they all sort of know that these adults have something that's different. They know that there's going to be a big step that happens. And when kids are getting close to that age, around six or seven, where they're going to get their nanoband on their head, they get it explained to them that their life is going to change because it really is coming into enlightenment. And 
It's a complete revolution in understanding. So when kids are being brought up in this world where they can see that adults can handle life and they know what's going on, there's no real fear for the future. In fact, there's a lot of optimism for the future in the kids. There's no worry, there's no doubt, there's no fear because they can see everyone around them has things under control. They're living in a world where things work. They're living in a world where things are peaceful. And of course, it doesn't mean they're always hunky-dory. Kids still hurt themselves. They still fight. They still get into trouble. Like, they're still back and forth in the human condition. But the understanding and the whole structure of civilization is such that people can live without desperation. So, we continued on our trip and... One of the things we did in the afternoon was we got drive through So fast food is still around, strangely enough, except it's, there's no branding for it. The branding is like not in this obscure sort of way that, it's, that it is today. And being in a world without advertising is probably something I should talk more about because that was one of the shocking things for me to see and experience is this world without advertising. But we got drive through and we went through the menu and I, I think I got a salad or something. And I said, well, if everything's automated, does that mean food is unlimited? And our tour guide said, no, there are still limits to the food that can be supplied depending on the farming and the way that it is able to be produced even though there is automation all the way back from production, from source, all the way to the logistics, to the creation, to the assembly. And so you can't get anything. And sometimes there would be a place that sells food, but it's, you know, sold out of stock sort of thing. And I said, well, who comes up with these recipes? And she said, well, food is one of those things that you can specialize in in your education. So we still have specialists in the future because if you want to learn about the mechanics of food, you need to download a certain amount of information to understand how recipes are made. So you can go through the process of learning about recipes and the automation of food and create your very own restaurant. You can create your own brand of food production And it's all free. There's no money involved. It's just a creative project that you do because you're interested in it. And the same thing goes for clothes. So another stop on our field trip was at a mall. And we walked into this mall. It looked basically like a standard mall. It was a normal sort of place. There was a clothes shop. There was a shoe shop. And there was a jewelry shop. But there were a few other shops that I didn't understand what they were. And we couldn't, obviously we couldn't, get them explained to us because it was just too far beyond our understanding but it was just like a normal mall and except everything was free there was no one making it like there was no one at the checkout you could just go in and take it and at first I was like well everyone should just be going free for all but of course I realized it was still sinking into me that there's no desperation so you don't need to go out and do that and the same thing happens in a certain way for music and movies. So I said, well, if everyone can plug into the, to the mainframe, do we have movies? And the answer to that is yes, in a sense, but they're known as 
experience sequences. So a movie is a climax and a development and a plot and a series of twists and turns in your emotions and you follow characters. But with nanotechnology, people create stories sort of like they create movies and you can download that experience as a sequence of events and play it in your mind. And you have to specialize in that creation in order to be able to create it at a high level. So movie makers still exist. Movie makers still have to go through training and specialize. And the same thing goes for music. I said, well, can we hear some music? You know, this will be great. This will be cutting edge stuff. I'll be able to see what the music of the future is. But of course, we couldn't hear it because it's all in it's all in the mind's eye. It's all in the ear of the head. And so to create music, a musician only has to imagine what the sound is like, and then it's created. And that then can be put into a file and transferred to other human beings. So there's still a limit to how much you can download. And just because you listen to the music doesn't mean you are then a musician, because there's a difference between how detailed you cognize things and how much you experience things. So the musician has to have a much higher level of detail in their cognition than the person who is just listening to it. And so that's how we still have musicians. We still have people that go through the process of building a building a complex understanding of music. And our tour guide was telling us about all these things, and I said, well, how do people get interested in certain things? Like, what happens if there's just no one interested in raising a family? And they said, well, this is part of the genetic engineering that they do. So they can program interests into human beings, and they make humans with a variety of interests so that civilization is balanced. Now, there are parameters to it. They can't they can't program specific interests, but they can program general interests. And they can't program how long they'll be interested in it for, but they can... Oh, and they can't... Sorry, I'm trying to get this right. They can't program how intense you'll be interested in it for. So usually in our times, you get interested in a couple of things over your lifetime. But in this world, you can become interested in all sorts of things. And you can become interested in family for a while, and then you start working on the family communities, and you start raising kids and playing with kids just because you're interested in it. And then you might go off and you might do music for a while, and you'll move around like this, and you'll have all sorts of varieties of experiences in your life, over the course of your life. So there's a much richer experience to human life in this world. So we continued our trip further up the coast towards the hotel that we were going to stay at. And the last stop before we went to the hotel was at one of the mainframes. So this is the hosting site or the hosting hardware of the global network. So there are thousands of these all across the world. But this one was particularly interesting because it had what they called 
an equation representation. So we got off our minibus and walked into this compound where the hardware was for the mainframe, the global network, and we went through our check-ins and went into this, you know, white hall, sort of like a hospital, and into this white room, which held the representation of the mathematical equation of the mainframe. So this is the maths equivalent of all human knowledge. This is the equivalent of all human understanding. And it's the way that it was represented. And what it was, was this white room, all white, all around, and in the middle of it were five sheets of glass. And these sheets of glass were about two meters by two meters, so they're square. And they seemed to be suspended in midair. I couldn't work out how they were staying there. But on this glass were numbers, shapes, weird numerals, brackets, equations, fractions, all over the place. And they were all in different colors. And not only that, but some of them were changing. So we'd look at it and some would change and switch and pop and slide along. So it was this mathematical equation which was changing all over the place with multiple layers. And some of the, sometimes the layers would be the same. They would have these strings that would look the same. And it was just this weird, colorful, wacky, sort of like a modern piece of art. And... Our tour guide said mathematicians sometimes come here to study this and to watch it because they can't comprehend it. So it's too far beyond any single human's understanding, but they can use it to get more of an insight into how the mainframe works. So no single human understands how the mainframe works, but they can see that there's a way to bridge this gap between maths and poetry and understanding. So seeing that was incredible. And when I saw that, I understood that the maths of the future is abs- absolutely astronomical. Like the, the, the marriage between poetry and maths and art made for such a powerful thing that I could see how they could calculate time travel it was how they could come up with the time travel program and i'll have to describe more about how time travel works just unbelievable stuff mind warping stuff so another big thing that came up or that came to mind was politics and i asked our tour guide about politics and she tried to explain it to me as best she could Because I said, if there's total automation and humans can have any experience they want and there's no currency, then how do we organize ourselves? Are there any political leaders? What's the political structure? And she said, there's no politics, not in the way that we know. And the way resources and issues are decided is through this centralized mainframe, because it's all connected to each person's imagination that each issue can be decided upon depending on how urgent and important it is. So the issues that are pressing are given the right amount of weight. So the 
central network system is calculating what needs to be done at a more precise way of balancing the needs and desires of what needs to be done. So the other thing is that's calculated on the understanding of each human. So you can become an expert in logistics and resource management and your imagination will influence the central network system. So when, the, when an issue comes up, the central network system will scan the understanding of everyone in the area and whoever has the highest understanding will have the most weight to it. So it's basically like every issue that exists gets voted on by every single person, but each vote has a different weight to it depending on how each person understands it. So, for example, if there's a pothole in the road, that's a very small issue, but that is still being decided upon and understood by the people around it. So, the observations of the people around it, you might just see a pothole in the road and you'll think, well, okay, so that's an issue, but that will then be uploaded to the central, the central system and that will be equated into all the issues that it needs to delegate its resources to. And we did see a pothole machine. We did see one of those bots coming along. It was basically like a normal road-making machine, but there was no people there. So it was really weird to see these machines walking around, like, doing things. They, well, I mean, they didn't walk because they didn't have legs, but the, the, the robot revolution is what really is connected to all the automation. But politics is completely non-existent because every issue can be calculated correctly. So think about the implications. Think about how barbaric our times are seen by these people. Think of how horrifying it would be to try and organize an entire country, an entire civilization, based on simple human rationality. The cognition of basic human rationality is nowhere near close to being efficient at deciding upon big complex issues. So this whole idea of electing a single person to be a politician or to be a leader is completely inadequate for the complexities of the world we live in. It's totally barbaric. It's just unbelievably messed up how inadequate it is. But with the centralized system, these issues can be worked through. They can be balanced in seconds across multiple combinations of results and resources and processes and systems. And everything is just instantaneous and centralized across huge amounts of information. So all these little problems like potholes in the road to who needs more food or who needs to stock more shelter or which part of the country needs more clothing is taken care of automatically. And she was telling me about this and I said, now, come on, there's got to be some way that people, like there's still going to be hardware. So there's still some labor involved by a human. Like what happens if a bot breaks down and then you could, what, do you have bots to break, to fix your bots? And then what if there's 
bots to fix bots to fix bots, you know, at some point automation does break down. And she said, well, yeah, if you get down to it that far, there is there are mechanics. There are people that have to work on the hardware with their fingers, but it's completely different to the way we think of mechanics. And the people that go through that are interested in it. They're actually programmed into the interests of it. So everything's done on a volunteer basis. Everything's done by however you want to do it, however long you want to do it, then you can do it. And if the computer can see that there's going to be a shortage in some sort of interest coming up, then they can just program a new interest into the human being, the next one that they give birth to, the next one that's given birth to. And so everything is just well-balanced. Everything's so... Ah, it's just an incredible world. I, uh, I can't understand being in this world. Like, what is it like? So we left the mainframe compound and we this was getting pretty late in the day. The sun was setting and we arrived at our hotel, which was where we were staying for the night. And it was basically like a normal hotel, basic beds, it was a beautiful view on one of the back balconies overlooking this lagoon and wonderfully set up nature. You know, nature is just allowed to roam free in some places. And it's really nice how we could have space to sit down. And we went into the hotel and there were a few other people there. And there were a few other people there that we could talk to. And after this day of going around and looking at things and seeing all that I had seen and my brain was just completely fried and I couldn't make sense of half of it. I couldn't believe what I'd seen and I didn't know if I was still dreaming or what was going on. But one question really, really came to mind and I'm sure you've thought about this question. And this this was so hard for me to ask this question. I almost started crying when I when I had these words coming out of my mouth. And that was like, my question was this, can I stay here? Can I live here? Can I not go back? Can I move into this world? Of course, the answer was no. And I knew the answer was going to be no. They told us in the prep course that the time travel trip is always a two-way trip. It has to be a two-way trip. Because the way they explained it to me is that time is like an organism. So if you cut your arm and it's a little scratch, you'll get a scab and the scab will heal over and you might have a little scar on there. But if you cut a limb off, like you cut a finger off or you cut your hand off, you cut your arm off, then an entire branch won't grow back. An entire thing won't heal itself. It won't happen. And if you cut your head off, if you cut off a critical part of the organism, then the whole thing collapses. The whole thing dies. The whole thing gets torn to shreds. And none of it works. And time travel is the same as that. So taking just one person out of history was enough to completely collapse the space-time continuum. So it's impossible to remove one person from the arrow of time without it being messed up because of how connected they are, 
how entwined they are. And I said, well, then what's the next best thing? Maybe I can take something back from the future. Maybe I can bring something from the future back to show people. And they said, well, that's, that's a stupid idea as well. Like, what are you going to do? A, a nanotechnology band? That would be the equivalent of taking a smartphone back to the 1400s. What, what, what could you do if you brought a smartphone back to the 1400s and you show it, showed it people around? You, well, first of all, you've got no internet. You've got no Wi-Fi. Second of all, you've got no electricity, so you can't charge it. The best thing you could do is take a couple of photos, show them the screen, and then the battery would die. So technology and time are nested in an unfolding process. They're in a growing network, which is like an organism. So each thing is entwined into itself. So we spoke for quite a while that evening. And the second day, well... My mind was racing so bad from all that I had seen that I couldn't really sleep. But it does sound like it's all a beautiful utopia. It all seems like it's too good and everything turned out well. But the second day was staying at the hotel and talking to historians. So all we did on the second day was stay in the hotel and ask questions. And we had specialists come to help us. And it's not pretty. Because how we got to this place is not a utopia. It's not a utopia. I don't know if I can Describe what happened. So, I think I'm going to need a break. And when we get, when I come back, I'm going to tell you how our world transitioned into this modern civilization of the year 2618. the sound of what's around when your feet come down and take their place Sound of what's around 
Next morning I woke up in my hotel bed. For a few short moments, I thought I was back. I thought the whole thing was a dream. I thought I had just dreamt up this experience and it was a lingering thing. But after a few seconds, reality set back in. And my fear and anxiety and my shock really started to bear down on me. I really felt uneasy with where I was and what, what I was doing and the situation that I was in. And I kept thinking about, I just want to go home. I just want to go home. I want to be back to where I know how things are. And every time I had that thought, I realized that home doesn't exist anymore. That world is gone. I am in a totally different place, a totally different world. So I got up and went out and had breakfast at the hotel with the other time travelers. And I was just talking to them saying, you know, how did you sleep? And of course, no one really slept. It's too much going on in the mind to really sleep. And I asked one of them, I said, do you believe all this? Do you realize what's happening? Do you realize where we are? What is going on? And they said, no, no, I don't believe this. I keep expecting to wake up. I keep expecting to snap out of it. I don't know how to make sense of it. One of the things we got told in the prep course was that if we ever find ourselves struggling to understand what's going on, to really wrap our head around it, then we should just deny it. We should just not try and think about it and remember to stop thinking about certain explanations because that's the only way you can make it through this experience. And people before have tried to go through this experience by understanding it and putting their head around it and making sense of it in their minds. And they can't keep up they end up in a ball of anxiety and they completely lose their minds because they can't grasp it the mind is just too small to wrap around these huge events so with that in mind we went into the second day sitting on the back balcony of the hotel with a beautiful view and just spent the whole day talking to the historians, asking questions about the transition of civilization. And to put it simply, these events are too big, too complex, too complex and too catastrophic for anyone to understand. They're too, they're too much to explain. They're just... I, so... I sat down with my historian and we had a translation bot. One of the things I asked about was, well, why does language sound the way it does? Why do you speak the way you do? Because the language sounded really weird. Like it sounds sort of like this mix, sort of like this eclectic thing. And they said, well, when neural technology was developing, the explosion of languages meant that everyone could speak every language so you would speak to someone but switch between different languages to describe things better 
depending on which language described it better. So understanding between people just in that sense got a whole lot better. But what happened is as it unfolded, it sort of merged and there was one global language that came out. So dialects don't exist anymore. It's all centralized because information is all shared across multiple languages, multiple forms of communication. And I had a few more questions about neurotechnology and I couldn't... I really couldn't understand it, obviously, but I said, well, how does it work? Is it just like a download? And they said, no, because there's this two-way system. It's a two-way system is how they should think about it because the biology of the mind or the biology of the brain integrates to the hardware and to the information via atomic technology. So usually when you plug a piece of hardware in or say when you tag a Say you're tagging cattle, or even if you're doing a microchip for tracking you know, your pet dog or something, then that's still hardware because it's still gross size. But with atomic technology, it integrates without even, in, without even piercing your skin. So these headbands don't even pierce the skin. They just go in and they mess with the chemicals in the mind in such a way that it is as dramatic as a real experience. But the process of integrating into the technology is entwined with how the mind grows. So it only becomes stronger as the mind adapts to the technology. And the information that the computer has depends on the imagination of the people. So the intelligence of the central computer system, the central network system, is dependent on the imagination of the people. So there are people who just plug in to the central nervous system, the central computer system, and just stay there and upgrade for the rest of their lives. And those are the people that reach astronomical intelligence. They're basically just living in a cocoon, basically just living in the matrix. And these are the people that drive the forefront of the intelligence. And... That brought up another question of mine, which was, well, is it artificial intelligence? Is that what it is? And they said, the guy said, no, that's not what it's, that's not how it works. Like people's idea of artificial intelligence in our times is very naive and very stupid because we think, oh, and in a computer that gets full intelligence would act like a human and it would start doing all these evil things and being really controlling and become a dictator, that sort of thing. But in a sense, we already have artificial technology, artificial intelligence, because say you have a viral video or a viral post on the internet where it's going out of control and no one can control how it becomes popular and how it becomes put into the forefront of people's attention. So that's an example of information being pushed forward in importance in the minds of the collective. And in the future, the exact same thing happens, except that there's a process and an equation on giving the correct weight to the correct ideas and the correct processes. So every night when people go to sleep, they plug into the central system and start downloading what's most important. It's the forefront of the technology. It's the latest updates. And everyone gets these updates 
which is just another step in the direction of shared understanding that everybody has. So these humans with nanotechnology have a constant reminder of how similar they are to each other, every human being, and also how different their experiences are because they're always sharing their different imaginations and their different experiences. And that in itself just makes for a much more peaceful world, a much better place to live in, and a total understanding of how central everything is connected. It was at the turn of the 22nd century that neural technology was making its major breakthrough. And the first announced humans to be transitioned into this new technology were around the year 2120 or so. And once that happened, an exponential explosion gave birth to a new city, which was designed at setting up humans and plugging them into the central system that was newly developed. So hardware was still being developed, it still took time, and it was only one city, they wouldn't tell me which country it was in, but it was the central city and the birth of neural technology, and all these humans started going into it and plugging in and learning about infinite intelligence, infinite cognition. And in its early phases, it wasn't as advanced as it is today in, our, in, in this world, in the 20, 2618. But even with the most basic form, it put human intelligence astronomically further ahead than anything they'd experienced beforehand. And at a certain point, after a few decades, this city reached critical mass and this was at a time when automation was taking off in a lot of countries. And I asked a lot of questions about how the transition to automation occurred in a lot of different countries. And some countries were very successful with it. Obviously, some were not successful in it. And some really struggled and some got left behind. So some countries didn't actually succeed in making it to the fully autonomous country or fully autonomous society. So transport was a big one. Logistics transports was one of the first things to transition. Then personal transport was transitioned. And then car manufacturing was transitioned to automation. And then clothing and building and infrastructure was trickled down into automation. And this was driven by the robotics revolution and also the transition into renewable energies. So for, for it all has to work together because you can't have robotics revolution without renewable energies. Because when a country moves over to renewable energies, it's first just replacing the energy that it's using. But then after a certain amount of time, there's a surplus and there's a overdoing of how much energy the country has. And it's when it gets that surplus that it can move into developing the technology and the hardware. So the nanotechnology was only the software 
stage of the transition into the new civilization. The renewable energy was next, the next important step, and then the hardware followed. And it was the food production that was one of the last things to transition into fully autonomous production. And the other big issue was the climate change. Now, we all have this thing about, is the climate going to destroy the planet? Is the world going to end? Are all these natural disasters going to happen? Are these problems going to come true? And the answer was yes, because we often think of the end of our civilization as this one day. It's this one thing where everything goes to hell. But what actually happened was things went bad for a lot of different countries. So there were countries that were transitioning to fully, full automation and they were becoming very rich and they had a, a really high standard of living. And then other countries were being hit with famine. They were being hit with resource shortages and they were also being hit with climate changes. So extreme weathers, storms, temperatures, depending where in the world you are, things really started to look bad for a lot of countries. And they wouldn't tell us any of the specifics. They wouldn't tell us which countries were more successful than others. But they, they did tell us a little bit about how a country transitioned successfully. So the way they explained it to me, and I don't really understand economics, but the way they explained it to me was like this. Say you have a business and your business creates food. So you're making food for people and you're selling it for a profit. When you're transport logistics becomes automated, then your costs go down. The cost of transporting your food goes down. So your cost of food goes down. Then when your renewable energy comes online, your energy costs come down. And then eventually what happens is your food production becomes automated. And then you've got this business where your costs are going down cheaper, cheaper, and cheaper. So you're getting more and more profit. And then the final thing that happens is you get your chefs put into automation. So you get a chef bot. So you're not even paying staff. So your wages plummet. So you've got this business where your costs are absolutely plummeting. They are just going straight through the floor. So sounds like a win-win, right? Your profit is going to go through the roof. But the problem is that when you fire your chef, he's no longer earning any money. So he doesn't have an income anymore, which means that he can't afford to buy any of the food that you're producing. So you've got this business, which has high profit, but low sales. So of course, naturally, you drop your price. Your price goes down because you need more people to buy it to make more and more profit. And this happens across a whole range of different parts of society and different industries at different times. Until what you get is what we call reverse inflation. Absolutely insane. Like this is just totally insane to imagine this. Your product is getting cheaper and cheaper to make. So your price is going lower and lower and lower. It's getting crushed into the floor until you have a business which costs almost nothing to run, does almost no sales and yet is still producing this high-quality product. And this is how businesses transition from private ownership into centralized ownership. 
So some governments started programs. This was still when there was there were still different forms of government throughout the whole transition phase. But the the smart governments, the governments that really knew what they were doing, started a program which would be to buy the business off the business owner to transition it into centralized business, centralized automation. And it was really weird because you'd be selling a business that makes no money and then you would get money, but then you wouldn't need to spend any of your money because everything that you wanted would be automatically for you. So it was a bit of like you jump, I'll jump first sort of transition. And some people did make a huge amount of money during this phase. So there was heaps of inequality in some countries. Some countries transitioned early and these were the countries that made a lot of money and had a huge standard of living that was far beyond anything else that other people could experience at that time. So there was huge inequality and an incredible ability for people to have a high standard of life and a high lifetime while there are other countries that are struggling. So all that might sound too good to be true, but the exact opposite also happened, which is that some countries didn't convert to renewable energies in time, which means their fossil fuel prices went higher and higher until your logistics breaks down, your agriculture breaks down, your food productions, your textiles, your infrastructure collapses, and then the prices go up and up and up until you can't afford to buy anything, and you have huge unemployment, huge scarcity, and then famine sets in. This is when you have immigration issues. So you have mass immigration issues between countries. You have mass problems with changing climate and uninhabitable areas. And there's stress on borders. There's stress on international relations. And there's a huge gap in equality between certain countries. Now, with all that in mind, with all that backdrop happening, the neural city, the neurotechnology city, expands to the point where it can now go into other countries and convert them to neurotechnology. And for the first few countries, this was very successful because they would go into the government, do their diplomacy, usually took only a couple of months, and then the leaders of that country would come out with a new program of transitioning all the citizens over to neurotechnology. And after the first few cities did this, a new divide opened up. So this was between the people who lived in a country without neurotechnology and those with neurotechnology. And a new fragmentation in the human race opened up. And this was a very much a us versus them on a global level that we have never seen before. Because the people that didn't have this neurotechnology couldn't comprehend what was happening. And they didn't interpret it in very good light because 
from the outside, it looked like that a city had been influenced by a new city and then converted to their way of thinking, converted to their technology. And the non-neurotechnology cities started this new propaganda, which was that artificial intelligence is overtaking the human race. So the neurotechnology societies were becoming demonized. They were becoming put down. They were becoming feared. And of course, anyone with neurotechnology knew that this wasn't the case. And they couldn't use military force. They could only use reason. They could only use diplomacy. So a lot of the cities and countries that were dictatorships were actually quite easy to transition. But once a few cities had moved across to this new technology, the divide was huge. And what ended up happening at the end of the 23rd century was this massive rift between a couple of countries that had automated economics, high amounts of resources, high technology, and infinite cognition in its citizens, and these scarcity, suffering, fearful countries that were demonizing and resisting the transition. Because if you think about it, one of my questions was, well, another big issue of our day is nuclear war. And we think that the times we're living in are quite unstable because everyone has the ability to kill each other, right? And I asked my historian this as we're talking about, and I said, well, do you know about the Cuban Missile Crisis? And of course he knew about it. And he said, the Cuban Missile Crisis was actually a positive point in human history because that gave rise to a serious amount of balance. It was a good check between the two sides because at first you might think, well, you've got massive nuclear weapons, but I don't. So I need to get you before you get me. But when the Cuban Missile Crisis occurred, both sides realized that both sides could kill each other and they were equal. So it meant the playing field was equal. This happens on a personal level as well. Think about it. If you're stronger than me by a long way and I'm really weak, I'm going to be fearful that you can hurt me and you can dominate me. And if you're extremely strong, far outside of my capabilities, you will be able to dominate me and that way will be able to control me in that sense. But if I'm just a little bit strong and you're extremely strong, I'm going to want to attack you to prove that I can defend myself. Whereas if we're both the same strength and we're both the same size and I could fight you and you can fight me and it would be about even, well, we don't need to fight because we, we both understand that we're about even. There's no threat there. The same thing occurs between the international relations between these different countries in this new world order. These weaker countries that were stressing under the the inability to convert to the new world order felt like they had to strike first. They felt like they had to destroy this new technology. They felt like they had to put an end to this new technology which was ruining the human race. On November 4th, in the year 2314, 
18 nuclear bombs were detonated in 18 major cities across the face of the planet. Millions of people lost their lives. Newly converted people to this nanotechnology had only days of enlightenment before they were killed. Tens of millions of people suffered. Entire continents became uninhabitable. And coupled with the stress of famine, of a changing climate, of an inability to convert to this new technology, to this new understanding, tens of millions of people were killed. Over the following decades, the world population fell. And it wasn't until the dust settled and these countries were brought to their knees through scarcity, through death, through disease, through absolutely catastrophic need to get themselves out of this disgusting, horrible situation that entire countries had found themselves in. That the last humans were finally transitioned to this nanotechnology. And it was around the mid-24th century that the human race became whole. And everyone understood what it meant to be human. What it means to be connected with everyone else. And to live on one planet. With one purpose in mind. Which is the betterment of all life on this planet. With all the technology. All the information. All the resources. All the different ways we have to relate to each other. We need to get everything together. We need to be working as one. We need to be understanding of each other. If we're going to make it. And everything we think is going to go wrong will go wrong. It does go wrong. I can't believe that these things actually happened. This is the world that we're heading towards. This is how things unfolded. <sighs> there were many points in my conversation with the historian that I had to stop because I couldn't take it in. Even with the difficulty of communicating through a translation bot, it was too difficult to bear. It was too much for me to understand. And there were a number of people who would break down in tears, just deny that any of this could happen. So, for the last part of our trip, I spent it sitting on the balcony of the 
hotel. Not really eating or doing anything, just looking out over the view, trying to make sense of everything, <laughs> try to grapple with these huge issues, these huge problems that we're facing. So as the sun set, we got in our minibus, made our way to the nearest airport. The plane took off, shot its rocket, there was a little bump in the ride, and I blacked out and came to about 20 minutes over the Australian coast. And as I looked out, that plane window Saw the clouds, the coastal line below. A sight that I've seen so many times before. I'm not unfamiliar with flying. That old strange feeling. It seemed so familiar of just landing a plane. It seemed incomprehensible. To how I could make sense of what had happened to me. <laughs> As the plane landed on the tarmac. The engine wound down. I fainted. When I came to, I was in the emergency ward. I'd been removed from all the other people that had been on the trip, and I was alone. The doctors and nurses that attended me, I had not recognized, they had not been part of the program. They wouldn't say anything about time travel, about the experience, about where I was or what had happened. And all I could say was, what happened? What's happened to me? Where am I? Where am I? What's going on? What place is this? Where am I? What year is it? And all I got was, this is Australia. It's the year 2018. Of course, this was part of the prep course. We knew this was protocol. We knew that this was how things were going to unfold for this trip. And it's part of the process of time travel to be reintroduced to your old time in such a way that deniability is plausible. <laughs> because if you're taken back to the army base and you're given a formal debrief, then there's no way that you can deny the process. And a part of the psychological training that you need is to be given enough deniability that you can forget about the event. Because if there's anything that you can do, or anything that you absolutely tangibly can't explain, then your mind will be lost. You'll be completely insane. It was when I got back that I understood why we didn't have to sign a non-disclosure agreement. <laughs> so one of my questions on the prep course was, you know, well, we're doing all this paperwork. Is one of the things a, a treaties of silence or is, it a, is there a non-disclosure agreement because it's top secret, right? I can't talk about this to anyone. And <laughs> the leader of the program just laughed and said, mate, you are not going to want to tell anyone this. You're not going to be sharing these stories with anyone. You have got no idea what you're getting yourself into. <laughs> and think about it. Like, how crazy does it sound? It's completely... I... I'm, uh, it's outrageous. It just sounds too... 
no one's going to believe this. No, no one could believe this. And I mean, who's listening to this really? I mean, this is a, this is just a podcast hobby. No one's really going to, I mean, a couple of my friends sort of listen to it, but not really. No one's going to be, my influence in society is nowhere near enough to make any dent in the space of time by telling this experience to someone. And over the next few days, I was absolutely shocked by this event. Like, I couldn't make sense of it. And it really suffered on my work. And my work performance really fell off for a bit as I tried to reintegrate back into my normal life. And where I work... (sighs) So the first shift back at work, where I work, I work as a burrito boy. And I make burritos for a living. And... I was thinking over these events right before my first shift back and I drove in and I was shaking with the shock, with the fear of having been through this experience and now being back. The weight of my normal life being back was just shocking me. I couldn't, like I felt nauseous. I felt sick from just going into my first shift back at work. And as I walked into this environment, I was on the verge of checking myself into a mental institution. I'm almost breaking down, trying to do what I've done a thousand times before. But of course, as my shift started to happen and unfold and I was moved back into my familiar environment and I started doing basic activities, mopping the floor, sweeping the floor, cleaning dishes, preparing food, stuff that I've done all this time, Many times before, I was able to relax and just be grateful for the simplicity and the understanding of being back in a familiar environment. And, oh man, even something like having a coffee and sipping on a coffee, so simple, but it was so gratifying. It was so comforting it was so assuring because it had nothing to do with nuclear war or the changes in technology or climate change or these huge issues that had been pushed into my awareness over the last few weeks as I tried to make sense of this experience and there were a couple of experiences that really shook shook me because For example, I was at the shopping center doing some groceries a couple of days after I got back and just doing standard groceries and I saw a mother who was doing her shopping and she had a shopping cart full of groceries. She had one kid on her belly, which was a baby, one kid in the shopping cart and another kid was running around causing havoc. And I looked at her and I saw that this was one mother and three kids and I was like, one mom and three kids. And I looked at her and she made eye contact with me for a second. And I just sort of naturally said, are these your kids? And normally I don't talk to people in public. I'm pretty shy about approaching people, but she was pretty open. She said, yeah, these are my kids. And I said, that's too much work for one person. And She sort of just looked at me like, whoa, that's a really powerful understanding and she wasn't a mother that was really struggling like she didn't seem like it was too much work for her she seemed to be holding it together really well some mothers 
are in over their heads. And when you see them, it's just like, honey, you need a break. This is too much for you. And they're struggling. And other parents are very successful and they are quite good at handling all the different complexities of parenthood. So I'm not saying that parenting is a broken institution in and of itself, and I'm not saying it's a terrible thing all around. It's not the impression I want to give. There's a complex web there to consider, and there's all sorts of different ways in which humans play out the family structure. But just being in the supermarket and seeing that meant that I had this deeper understanding of just looking at someone, and they they had their mundane activity of buying groceries, and I could see what their sort of life is like, what their dynamics are like, and all the things they have to deal with on a daily basis and constantly. And my whole relationship to people changed. In one way, it was quite maddening to see the petty things that people worry themselves in. I became very frustrated and angry at the things that people were becoming very emotional about and stressed about, which I knew were very little things. But also, I kept thinking back to that watch where people would use neurotechnology. They'd use nanotechnology to share their experiences with other people and realizing how much of a deep connection that was. And I'd look at people, I'd walk around, I'd see people, and I'd be just given this feeling of how complex they are, how much they have to deal with, how many feelings they have, how many thoughts they have, how many different experiences they've had. And I'd get these hits, these waves of just looking at one person, just a stranger on the street, and be shocked by how much there is. There's a whole world inside a person. There's a whole pantheon. There's a whole extravagance of different things that I can never know, that I can never find out. And that kept happening to me for a couple of weeks after I had this experience. And of course, I didn't, I didn't tell anyone about this for upwards of eight months. So The trip was the 27th and 28th of March, 2018. So this is now November. So it's like seven or eight months since I had this experience. And it was only recently that I told a close friend. So I've told two close friends about these experiences. One didn't really believe much of it at first, but he could understand where I was coming from. And another one didn't believe any of it, but he was well enough to listen to me and have questions. And these guys had a lot of questions because, of course, there's so much here that I've experienced. There's so much in the experience that I haven't even explained in this last hour of talking to you. There's questions that lead to more questions that lead to more questions. And not only that, but there was a whole bunch of things that I didn't even ask about when I was there. For example, one of my friends says, well, what about space travel? Do they have space travel in the future? And I said, man, I didn't even think about that. I didn't even think to ask that. So I don't know what space travel is like. And that's just one of the examples. I mean, I guess they would probably have pretty advanced space travel because all their technology is quite advanced. But... That was just 
one of the things that I never even asked about. Another thing that came up was, this was at the very end of the conversation that I had with the historian, was my question was, what's the future of the future? Like, where does our time, as in 2618, see going into the future? And they said, well, time travel is a big step because the time travel program was about 30 years old. And the whole point of time travel was how do we go back and save the people that died in this huge global transition over the last few centuries? And how do we minimize the famine and the nuclear war? And what can we do to save the people that have already passed? And I said, well, how many different eras have you traveled to? How many different times have you been to? And they said that our time was one of the most important times because the human mind in this era is the earliest that it's been able to cope with the stretch. So the mind can cope with certain amount of changes in information up to a point until it completely explodes. And that's sort of what I was experiencing. I was experiencing the end, far end of that. And the people earlier to that time couldn't cope with it. So you couldn't really travel back to earlier years and interact with anyone because they wouldn't have a bar of it. So establishing the time travel connection was quite recent. But another thing they said was because of the way time is an organism and how you can't really interfere with it and it unfolds gradually, there was no calculation that they had found that would save the human race, as it were, or save the humans that died in the transition, or even minimize it. So the time travel program, I got the impression, was not going to be successful in what its intentions were. The only thing it was really good for was giving people certain experiences. And so in that sense, I got the feeling that it would probably be, well, I don't know. I didn't ask about the future of time travel or what they could do. Maybe the future of the future has mathematical equations which are so advanced that we can save everyone that ever lived on the planet. Um, I don't know. It's just too far out of my understanding. But another thing they told me about for the future of the future was nanotechnology in, in animals. So this was giving animals infinite cognition with the headband so that they can move towards the human experience. So basically what they were trying to say was in the future, cows are smarter than humans and cows have a better quality of living than humans. And I said, well, what about all the insects? You know, you're never going to be able to capture all them and put a headband on them. And they said, well, no, because nanotechnology is atomic. So you can literally spray a beehive and it will spread into all of the bees. So you can give the animals a better cognition. Now, of course, they do have a limit because each nanotechnology, each brain technology, each nanotechnology is entwined in the biology. So it's not like bees can now think as smart as humans. And of course, they can't talk, so they can't communicate in that way because they don't have jaws. So there are limits to it, but the quality of life for animals in the future 
is absolutely astronomically ahead of what it is today. Part of me thinks I've had a psychotic episode. I keep playing through different psychological syndromes that I know about to try and explain this experience. And a lot of it is very egocentric, sort of equivalent to the person who thinks they've been abducted by aliens and probed, and it's sort of very self-centered. You think, well, why are you so special to be taken by the aliens in this whole world? It's like, come on, that's not very believable. And wishful thinking and psychological defenses and defense mechanisms and a whole range of different psychotic maps that I'm familiar with keep coming to mind, but none of them really fit. None of them really make sense to me because of my understanding, because of how clear I can see through my own psychology. I've got a pretty good understanding of my own mind, and I've got quite a few different things that go on with my psychological maps. So I don't know how to make sense of it. I don't know what the significance is. One of my friends said I should share this experience with everyone because it's an incredible experience, but (laughs) God, everyone's going to think I'm crazy once they hear it. Like there's no coming back from this once it's out. So I might have to just wait until it's died down a little bit before I release this. But another idea was to sell it as fiction, which is maybe a good idea. But first of all, I don't know how to write books, so I'm not a writer. I don't have that skill. Second of all, it sort of just sounds like a standard sci-fi fiction movie anyway. It's like, and it's not even that glamorous. It's not even that realistic. The problem I have is that it's too... It's too far-fetched to be believable, but it's not far-fetched enough to be like a story or entertaining. So I feel that way in terms of explaining it to people and also just believing it for myself because there is a huge part of me that thinks something has happened to me which is not right. It's not it's not correct. So I don't know if I mean, there's a part of me that thinks this whole thing wasn't real, but there's too much of me that can understand the pro... Like, there's too much of me that feels it. There's too much of me that has these emotional reactions when thinking about it that thinks... That can't explain it away. Like, it it is a real experience. It did happen to me. And And I know how crazy that sounds. I know how outrageous it sounds. There's no way... I'm going to have to just stop talking about it. I'm going to have to just forget about the whole thing. But what's true and what's real, what's true or what's most realistic about it is the lasting significance, the lasting impact that it made on my psychological and emotional understanding. Because my place in the world, my place in time, was brought down right into the front of my face. And it was turned into something I couldn't ignore. If only for two days, for only two days, my place in time on this earth 
was thrusted into my awareness. And that was so shocking that I almost completely lost my mind. And I was grateful for the petty little things that I had in my life. My simple job, my simple activities. Because my daily personal problems all returned to me after the trip. I still got hungry, I still got tired, I still need to clean my teeth, I still need to have a shave, have a shower. And these little things started adding up until the experience wore off. And that glow that I had when I looked at other people and the significance of being in this world wore off. I became more entwined and entwined with petty activities, with daily life. And at times I'd find myself worrying about little things like missing a red light or being late to something or forgetting to bring my wallet somewhere. And part of me remembered when I stressed out about these petty things that I had a bigger understanding of the world. But I still felt like I was in this organism and in this limit of the human condition. I was still human. I'm still human. I'm still a person. I still have a basic life. I may have had one of the most incredible experiences that a human being can possibly have. I'm talking about time travel. Real time travel. Who would have thought that time travel is real? And I did it. It happened to me. And I'm nobody. I'm not. I'm really, there's absolutely nothing special about me. I don't have anything going for me. But I've had this experience. And I've seen what it's like for humans to relate to themselves in a totally different way. The future is totally different to anything that we can imagine. And we're going to have to pull together if we want to get there. If we're going to survive. Don't you understand? We're all going to die. Every last one of us are going to die before any of this stuff happens. Can't we just get there by being a little bit more nice to each other, being a little bit more patient, a little bit less greedy, just being a little bit more understanding of each other? Can't we be nice to each other? I don't know if I'm going to be able to ever speak about this again. I've got this off my chest. It's a fading memory that I can't make sense of. No doubt there will have to be some sort of Q&A because there are more questions that arise than are explained by this sort of story. So if you have q and I'd be happy to answer them if you'd like to write in. And I don't know what 
lessons or morals or significance anyone can learn from these crazy hallucinations. But I've said my piece now, so it's over. My name is Andrew. This is the Andrew Lake Podcast. And in this special edition, I've been sharing with you my personal experiences with time travel.
halfway through I'll celebrate my birth in June And I remember the first time I saw another Right in front of me It's hard to believe it wasn't a movie But all those faces And those places Were just like me Oh, 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 oh. London, Havana Then home Oh, 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 oh. Dublin Places grow fainter in my mind And I forget what it was like To have the world And as the Hussein's take over my TV The world, it slips away from me 